Hello, 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 and welcome back, or welcome for the very first time to Infectious, a podcast all about the itty bitty creatures that make us sick. I'm talking about bacteria, viruses, prions, and all the other tiny, tiny things that infiltrate and infest our bodies. My name is Adriana Payero, and I will be your host as always. This week, we will be continuing our journey to learn all about scabies, focusing on transmission and the symptoms. Oh, and of course, a bit of etiology and pathophysiology so we can all understand what's exactly going down. So get ready for a new episode where we'll all learn about new reasons to think before you hold your sketchy Tinder date's hand, why Norway has a very odd claim to fame, and why scratching that itch might just be one of the best choices you've made. So let's get into it. Episode 6, Scabies, Part 2. As a refresh for those who listened to the first part of this series a few weeks ago, or a catch-up for those who are coming in now, scabies is an infectious skin disease that is caused by the scabies mite scientifically known as Cercoptes scabii, var hominins. One of the most interesting things about these mites is that they have evolved to be obligate human parasites, meaning they spend their entire life living off a human host. Their life cycle occurs entirely on the surface and within the uppermost level of human skin, known as the epidermis, and has five stages that you need to know. That is egg, larvae, protonymph, tritonymph, and finally emerges their adult forms. Females have to breed once to be able to lay eggs for the rest of their life, and they lay between two to three eggs a day over their 14 to six-week lifespan. This gives birth to the next generation that then continues forward to make their own burrows on and on and on it goes. But now that we're all caught up, Let's get some new information under our belt and talk about how these guys are transmitted. Now that we know where scabies mites live, let's talk about how transmission occurs. First, scabies mites are host-specific, or if interspecies transmission does occur, it's normally self-limited. This means species of Cercoptes scabii that live on dogs, per se, will very, very, very rarely be able to infect humans, and if they do, won't be able to be passed on from human to human. This is good, because it means we won't see much zoonotic transmission from animals to humans or anthropogenic transmission from humans to animals, making us all safer in the long run. So. Important fact one, to nail into our heads, the source of the infection is almost always going to be another human, excluding a very, very few number of rare circumstances or exceptional cases. Now that we know exactly who is passing scabies around, we have to ask the important question of how does transmission occur? Interestingly, this topic has been debated for a while, with literature supporting multiple pathways to transmission, but there are two that truly predominate and appear to have some strong evidence behind them. The first, and 
most widely accepted is that direct, prolonged skin-to-skin contact with a person who is already infected with scabies will be the primary way that people acquire the infection. This is hypothesized to occur as it provides time for a young, newly fertilized female to move from the old host to the new host. Specifically, the lady mite making this journey is the most important aspect of the transmission, as, if you remember from the last episode, she'll be able to lay eggs immediately if she has already copulated with a male. This means that individuals need to only be colonized by a single female mite to start an infection, likely why the disease is so crazy infectious, especially in areas where people are stored in tight quarters or enclosed populations. But we'll touch on that a little bit later in the epidemiology section. As close contact with an infected individual is well recognized as the most important risk factor in transmission, sharing a bed with an infected person with or without sexual contact is the most common situation that results in infestation, which means that scabies gets to join the most exciting club of all sexually transmitted diseases. And I know that's a personal bias, but come on, they're just so interesting. However, you do not need to get jiggy in the sack to transmit this little bugger, as some research has shown that just even dancing or holding hands can also transmit the mites. So yes, while holding hands cannot get you pregnant, it can definitely give you another tiny little gift. (laughs) Finally, on the tone of less risque transmission, often all the children in one family will become infected if a household experiences an outbreak as kids are pretty touchy-feely. So, summary, the most important aspect here is definitely touch. The second, and assumed to be less common, form of transmission to the point that it has been argued it might not even exist, is transmission via fomites, such as shared clothing or shared beds. This was quite eloquently studied by a researcher with the last name Mellenby in 1944. In this study, focused to decipher how scabies spread so quickly among soldiers, the research team developed a pretty easy study structure. Step one, recruit people with scabies. Step two, make them sleep in a bed. Step three, make uninfected people sleep in the same bed the following night. And step four, count how many of those uninfected individuals develop scabies. For their first round of the study, a set of 300 infected individuals with a parasite rate between 20 to 50, the mite burden in the top 10% of all human cases, were recruited with an uninfected partner. Of these individuals, only 4 of 300 became infected. That's a measly 1.3% of everyone who shared sheets. So, they repeated it again, but with those with a very high parasite load. And that was defined as one that was over 200 mites per person, which represents the top 0.5% of normal cases. This was unfortunately only repeated 10 times, but of those 10, three individuals became infected, meaning it had a 30% transmission rate. This suggested that while it was possible for transmission to occur through sharing beds, it was much, much more difficult to transmit than compared to human-to-human contact. Additionally, Arlian et al. 
reported that mites dislodged from the host may survive for at least 36 hours at room condition and up to 17 days in cool, humid conditions. This provides additional support that the mites can survive for some time when separated from the host and, once again, suggests that fomite transmission is very possible. I believe this entire idea, though, is best represented by a passage written by Mellenby. Quote, I believe that if cases have a very low parasite rate, say five or under, it is most unlikely that they will transmit scabies, except to someone who sleep together with them night overnight. Individuals with parasite rates between, say, 20 and 50 will readily transmit the disease to someone who sleeps with them, but they will rarely infect bedding and will be of little danger during ordinary social contacts. The very small proportion of cases with very high parasite rates, on the other hand, are capable of passing on the disease in many, many ways. And to sleep with such a person is practically a certain way of becoming infected, though a much more transient contact may easily cause the disease to be picked up. Unquote. In conclusion, Scabies is a disease that is predominantly transmitted from person to person through close skin-to-skin contact, although transmission through fomites may occur, especially when those using the object previously were infected with a very large number of mites. Now that we have a good grasp of how the disease is transmitted, let's finally hit on the juicy part. The infection itself. With how infectious scabies is, one might assume that symptoms come almost immediately after infection. But, very interestingly, the presence of scabies mite is normally undetectable for up to four to six weeks after inoculation. Yes, that's right. After the first time you are infected, it can take over a month before you begin to experience noticeable symptoms. And once symptoms begin, they generally progress in the following manner. In the first month, irritation starts and continues to get progressively worse as the host becomes sensitized to growing infection. This means it takes between 6 to 10 weeks of infection to begin to experience the full rash-filled, itchy experience that characterizes the clinical disease. Most manifestations of clinical scabies will lay in one of two forms, referred to as classic scabies or Norwegian-slash-crusted scabies. As classic scabies is by far the most common form that's observed, we'll touch on that one first. So, when it comes to symptoms, the most common one is severe itching at night and a pimple-like skin rash, which results from the sensitization a type of allergic reaction to the protein and feces the parasite leaves in the skin. A fact most noticeable as inflammation is actually most intense a few millimeters back along the burrow, i.e. at the point occupied by the mite some 24 hours or so earlier, rather than the current location of the mite upon examination. Common sites of infection on the body in adults is actually directly linked to where the ectoparasites predominantly breed and live. This includes the fingers and wrists, elbows, feet and ankles, genitals, and armpits. 
It is not known why certain areas of the body are commonly infected than others. Hands and wrists infections may simply be the result of touching infected persons and handling mite-contaminated materials. However, the mites' choosy selection suggests that there is some rhyme or reason to the madness, specifically surrounding the characteristics of these areas. When I've looked into this, some hypotheses thrown out have been that these areas tend to have thinner skin, which may be easier to infiltrate, while a more interesting hypothesis surrounds the varying types of lipid compounds, with lipids referring to fat in a very, very fancy scientific way. Specifically, it appears that different developmental stages of scabies mites are attracted to different lipids in our skin, and that lady mites are the most responsive to these differences. This suggests that maybe it's the fat content of these areas that are attracting the mites, but there is still a ton of research needed to fully understand why these specific infection patterns occur. At the locations of the mites' burrows, there's normally a reactive skin rash, and while it's not normal to see these lesions above the neck, it is quite possible in warmer climates, particularly in the bedridden and young children. In these special patients, retroarticular folds are a common hiding place for the mites. And for other people who would also have to Google that, it means the area right behind your ears. Generally, the skin lesions can be quite varied between individuals, but most commonly include a visible burrow. One of the super cool things that a clinician or an individual might happen to find, but can be difficult too because there's only 10 to 15 mites per person. These will appear as tiny, little, thin, almost squiggly lines that move through a person's skin that are created by the female scabies mite tunneling beneath the surface. Interestingly, as the immune reaction occurs due to the presence of both the burrowing female, her feces, and the eggs, the appearance of the skin eruptions normally will occur along the burrow. This provides a classic appearance of knots on a rope, or a lineup of the raised bumps along the pathway of the female burrow. This can be best described as a wavy, thread-like, or linear papule up to a centimeter in length with a small vesicle containing a black dot, the female scabies mite, at the leading end. However, in tropical climates, it's difficult to find and small erythematous papules are often much more evident. And to break that down, an erythematous papule can be best translated as a raised bump of skin that is less than one centimeter around and has an abnormal red glow due to the accumulation of blood in the dilated capillaries. So basically, a tiny raised bump with that classic ready glow that's best observed on lighter skin tones. Other lesions can include pimple-like bumps, small liquid-filled bumps that look like blisters, scales, crusts, nodules, and excursions. While we all love a good skin rash, you cannot describe what it's like to be infected with scabies without talking about the itch. 
One of the most classic symptoms is referred to as nocturnal pruritus, indicating a growing itchiness at night, often worsening at night after the patient lies in bed and is a very consistent feature between cases. Severity may vary, but it's often extremely intensive. If you're wondering why the itchiness increases at night, there are several hypotheses. Some believe it is because there is an increased activity of the mite in warmer skin as the individual bundles up for a long night's sleep. Which literally means that people can feel the mites moving through their skin and are trying to scratch them away. Others believe that it may be driven by increased nocturnal activity of the mite as they respond to the decreased light resulting from the sun setting and lights being turned off for the evening. And some people describe this itch as so bad, like they can feel the mites crawling in their skin, and it just like gives me goosebumps every single time I read about it. (sighs) The second most common presentation of scabies is referred to as crusted, or Norwegian scabies, gaining its name from its first description within a Norwegian leprosy patient in 1848. This version is much more severe than the previous and occurs in patients with immunosuppression. This includes patients with HIV, the elderly, persons who are taking corticosteroids, and those who have conditions that prevent them from itching and or scratching, such as spinal cord injury, paralysis, loss of sensation, or mental debility. This extremely severe form of scabies looks very different than the normal disease, with persons experiencing thick, scaly crusts and dermatitis or psoriasis-like eruptions over the hands, feet, and other parts of the body, generally without much irritation. As well, while classic scabies is rarely seen above the neck, Norwegian scabies can also be observed on the scalp, and this can actually mimic the look of seboric dermatitis or psoriasis, but more simply put, can look like this red scaly patchiness on the scalp. The cause of this difference? The extremely high mite burden observed, and for comparison, while 10 to 15 mites may be on an individual with classic scabies, those afflicted with crested scabies can have 2 million mites per person. This also results in the presentation being extremely, extremely infectious. This results in crustus scabies often being observed in index cases when outbreaks occur in institutional settings such as long-term care homes or prisons, with the phrase index case just being fancy epi-speak to say the first case that was there that really started the outbreak and began the spread to everyone else. Interestingly, Itching may be completely absent in crested scabies because of the patient's altered immune status or neurologic conditions. This means that individuals may not show the usual signs and symptoms, such as rash and itching, which may make it difficult to have early detection, diagnosis, and treatment to actually stop the spread. Something that's really interesting that I read and I just can't find where the review paper is that said it was that there seems to be some level of a hypothesis that itching is actually an important way of how humans 
are able to kind of fight back against the might, which makes sense, or else why else would we have evolved to do it? But it seems that itching um, can support us in dislodging the mites from our skin, which can actually help to reduce the burden of the infection. So the number of mites that are on us, which I thought was pretty cool and does provide some explanation of why it gets so, so bad in people who are immunosuppressed and don't have that sensation of itchiness that would result in that mechanical manipulation of the skin. Something that I thought was kind of interesting. And on that note, let's touch on what's actually happening to us on the cellular level to fight this infection in our next section of pathophysiology and the description of natural infection. As you can tell by the symptoms, our body definitely does not like having this parasite on it. And that is quite eloquently outlined by how aggressively we observe those reactions, right? Extreme itchiness, rash, these all indicate that our body is doing something to fight back. But what exactly does that look like? After entering the human host, the parasite population begins to grow exponentially as each female is laying like two to three eggs a day. Practically every mite which burrows into the epithelium of a person can be detected through very, very close examination. And they're just chilling in their little burrow for five to six weeks laying eggs. A pattern that is so common that early workers and clinical staff used to actually be able to count the number of eggs hatched and otherwise in a burrow and they would use that to estimate the months elapsed since the burrow had been created. Which, could you imagine if that was your job? <laughs> While this might have been kind of a crappy job, it did teach us one thing, that the females almost begin to lay their eggs immediately after they've penetrated into the cuticle. Although, interestingly, it seems as though the next generation doesn't seem to be created for at least 21 days. So, a bit of a mystery in the literature there. Unfortunately, these mites aren't the best roommates for our skin, though, and they leave behind a crazy bad mess as they burrow. This includes all types of goodies, such as saliva, feces, nitrogenous excretory material, the equivalents of our pee, molting enzymes and hormones, and not shockingly from how those who are infected experience intense rash and itchiness, this mite trash is extremely antigenic, resulting in an aggressive cellular response. Cells in the epidermal tissues that respond will include keratinocytes, fibroblasts, macrophages, mast cells, lymphocytes, Langerian cells, other dendritic cells, and endothelial cells of the microvascular, or more easily, Basically, all the human cells get riled up and are pissed off and ready to do something about it. But we all know nothing happens for a month. There's that delayed time period of four to six weeks, which seems pretty lazy at first for our body, noting it as being attacked by scabies mites. But it's actually because scabies mites have something up their sleeve. While they're making a mess in our skin, 
They're also simultaneously sending our bodies mixed signals to delay the immune system reaction to their presence, meaning they can somehow block or modulate the normal cell-to-cell signaling pathways that would fight back against them. A very, very handy tool they evolved sometime in their extended co-evolution with us. And while how this exactly occurs isn't quite fully figured out, there are a few studies on the subject. One study showed that they seem to be able to both up and downregulate IL-8, an important interleukin for recruiting neutrophils, the primary white blood cells responsible for gobbling up bacteria and fungi, and cause neutrophils to suppress bacterial killing by inhibiting opsonization and phagocytosis, which basically means it stops them from covering them with a layer so that they can't infiltrate, as well as eating them up. As well, early in the infestation, mites have been shown to be able to inhibit the ability of macrophages to migrate to the site of inflammation. And macrophages basically act as that first line of cellular defense, and they eat anything that doesn't match a human cell. So they're very, very important to ensure that you have an early response to infection. This shows one of likely many ways they are able to modify the host response, allowing them to grow and establish in the new person they've infected. As a very cool aside, downregulation of IL-8 is actually not unique to our dear friend, the scabies mite, but also occurs in ticks. Ticks have been shown to release a compound known as evasin-1, which is able to selectively bind and neutralize IL-8 and help them, well, drink our blood. A very cool parallel between two multi-legged friends that cause so much trouble. But as tricks eventually get figured out, eventually the body skin does react. While all of the mechanisms of this are not quite figured out, there has been some really, really good research on this, as outlined in a wonderful review article that I found by Bat et al. published in 2017. Upon detecting the invaders in the skin, keratinocytes, the actual skin cells, Langerian cells, and macrophages in the skin respond to the mite antigen, secreting a series of pro-inflammatory cytokines that begin the tough job of recruiting the rest of our white blood cell warriors. This involves Langerian cells, also referred to as dendritic cells, rushing to the closest lymph nodes to present their discovery that there's someone invading into the body to T-cells. And these T-cells are some of the most important cells in the adaptive or cell-mediated immune system. This presentation focuses them on a very specific foreign particle, also known as an antigen, rather than them generically attacking any antigen like a macrophage. The T-cells then differentiate, or more so specialize, into a few different special skill sets. Some will function to recruit more macrophages, or security guards, to be able to help clean up the place. Next, another subset will recruit neutrophils to the region to help cause inflammation. And finally, the last set will bring in both eosinophils, B-cells, and mast cells to cause humoral or cell-independent immunity and allergy. And I know, I just said a bunch of names of cells that you may have never heard of before, or if you're like me, you learned about in college, but it's been a while since immunology. So let's go through them all one by one. So Langerian cells can be best described as just fancy tissue-resident macrophages in the skin. 
and function almost as security guards of the area, keeping watch that no one unwanted has gotten in. For that reason, these dendritic cells are among the first skin antigen-presenting cells to come into contact with antigens, migrate to draining lymph nodes, and process the antigen to be presented to effector T cells, which result in T cell differentiation and activation. Basically, I like to call them the tattletales of the skin, um, and they're like running over to the police station to call someone over to help. In contrast, macrophages are the front lines of the fight, fighting viruses, bacteria, fungi, and protozoa that enter the body by ingesting them and killing them with toxic enzymes within the cells. Very, very cool. So Langerian cells are more specific. They're like you acting as the detecting system, well, macrophages are actually part of that initial fight. Both of these cells are nonspecific, meaning they will react to any antigen, let it be scabies mites or salmonella, if salmonella was in your skin for some reason, which makes them amazing frontline workers. T cells are one of the central players, as I mentioned before. And they both act to fight off the infection as well as recruit other white blood cells to help fight them off. One very interesting fact that I found out when I was looking into this is that higher levels of CD8 plus T cells found in skin infected in scabies has been associated with higher levels of keratinocyte apoptosis leading to epidermal hyperproliferation. I'll break it down, don't worry. This basically means that a T-cell subtype in scabies causes high levels of skin cell death, resulting in rapid growth of more skin cells. What's super cool about this is that it provides an explanation of how crusted scabies occurs, as an increased growth of skin cells could result in thick plaques developing. Very cool. B-cells are best known for being the big bad boys, producing the antibodies that provide long-lasting immunity to infections. But because of this, their response is much slower. Antibodies play an important component of the humoral response, i.e. the non-cellular response, both acting to activate other cell types, but also to attach the outside of the quote-unquote bad guys marking them for other cell types to destroy, such as our dear friends eosinophils or T-cells. In scabies infections, very high levels of IgG and IgE antibodies are secreted. And what's most important to know here is that our understanding of how these antibody cascades function and their role in the immune response It's hard to get a good description of because it's almost impossible to create good models of human infection. Overall, though, IgE antibodies are known to be an essential component of a host defense against a variety of parasites and, along with mast cells and eosinophils, constitute an essential element in allergic and parasitic inflammation. Speaking of, Eosinophils, the guys recruited by B cells, are known for their beneficial role in host defense against nematodes and other parasitic infections. These guys have been shown to adhere to a variety of antibodies that specifically bind to the invading parasite, and they help to kill them through degranulation, which I've always liked to think about as them kind of puking their guts out, but like with acid. In this way, they work directly with B cells as B cells produce the antibodies that will mark the parasite and eosinophils act to attack and kill them. And finally, but not least, 
how could we finish this tale without mast cells? Mast cells are recruited by B cells through the secretion of IgE antibodies. And mast cells' activation and degranulation are important parts of the regulation of the innate and adaptive immune response. As well, they are best known for the role in IgE-mediated allergic reaction. So if you remember before, when I mentioned that scabies comes as a result of hypersensitivity reactions, this cell type recruitment is one of the reasons that this occurs. And now you are an absolute expert at this. It's beautiful to see the complexity of the interactions that lead to the reactions that we observe on the outside, and how important each cell type is to the fight against these invaders. And we could never finish up a section talking about symptoms without talking about the complications of these symptoms. And these can include impetigo, postgabiotic pruritus, and psychological challenges. Impetigo, a bacterial infection of the skin, is common in scabies due to the mechanical damage to the skin that results from the continuous itching. And if you can think of when you've ever had an itch and you've scratched enough, you've definitely broken into the skin. And if you remember, your nails are gross. So, you know, hand in hand. This freshly ripped up skin that's also experiencing some weird immune modulation because the scabies mites are kind of messing it up, creates a perfect habitat for the introduction of bacteria, such as staphylococci and streptococci, that can easily proliferate in these conditions. This can often result in the need for additional treatment with topical and systematic antibacterials that can help to resolve these infections and make it so, you know, you don't lose your arm. Postscabiotic pruritus refers to the itchiness that can follow treatment from scabies that results from the hypersensitivity reaction to the dead scabies mites in the skin continuing. Normally, a patient would be warned of this to ensure that they do not overuse treatment and that they understand that it will eventually go away, but I could just imagine what it feels like when you think you're finally free and you're still itchy after treatment has occurred. And finally, there's psychological complications. And these can arise and can be quite varied, but include disbelief, persistent delusions of parasitosis, shame, or guilt. And as you can imagine, if you got scabies and you gave it to someone that you love, it would be very hard to socially and emotionally process that entire event. This can be decreased, though, through strong communication between the care provider and patient to assure that they're educated on what scabies is, what's the root of transmission, and the characteristics of the disease. And hopefully that can help to reduce this or at least make getting over this horrible infection a little bit better. And that's this episode. If you like this podcast, please rate or subscribe on your podcast listening platform of choice and help others find it and enjoy it as well. And if you want to connect more, follow me on Twitter or Instagram at our handle at InfectiousCast. Check out our show notes at InfectiousCast.com or email me at InfectiousPodcast at gmail.com. Tune in in two weeks for another week of scabies, touching on the history, the epidemiology, and how medicine has figured out how to cure and reduce the burden of this insanely infectious disease. Oh, and to wrap up this baby, I need to share my fun fact for the day, of course, and this one is for our sushi lovers. 
You know wasabi, the green stuff that comes on the side of those California rolls that you down every Saturday? Well, unless you are at a very, very expensive Japanese restaurant or in Japan itself, or somehow are a farmer of wasabi, the chance is you're, you're probably not consuming it. While traditional wasabi is made of Japanese horseradish, the chance you're getting that in North America is pretty tiny. This is because the actual wasabi plant is exceptionally hard to cultivate, needing to be grown in beautiful rushing water and spread out to reduce the spread of infections among the crop. For this reason, and primarily the price tag, the wasabi we eat is normally a mixture of European horseradish mustard, and neon green food coloring to create the effect. If you do ever get the chance, though, to have real wasabi, it might be a bit of work, as the rhizome has to be grated almost immediately before eating it, or else it'll almost completely lose its flavor in 15 minutes. I know, pretty cool. Anyways, if you stayed this long, thanks for sticking with me, and I hope you have an amazing day. Most importantly, though, remember to smile at a stranger, help out your neighbor moving that desk out of their apartment, or let that person merge in. Because being a good person and helping others is infectious. But in the absolute best way. Take care.